Welcome back, everyone. This is the podcast for cultural reformation. It's brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. The Ezra Institute is Canada's high-impact worldview and cultural apologetics training ministry. And you can check out more of our content and our articles and the training programs that we offer here at the EICC Centre by visiting ezrainstitute.ca. This podcast is also hosted on the Rebel Alliance Media Network. And that is a, uh, that is a great ministry and some great friends who are putting out content to help you understand and engage with culture from a biblical perspective. Uh, Pastor Nate Pudi, the Van Brimmers, they're, uh, they're putting out lots of awesome content. I encourage you to go and check out the podcasts and articles and everything else that's going on at Rebel Alliance Media. That's at rebelalliancemedia.com. So anyway, We've been away for a couple of weeks, but now we're back. I hope that uh, you've missed us a little bit, but not too much. I promise you that this show is worth it. Today, we've got Joe Boot back with us. Joe's the founder of the Ezra Institute. He's the founding pastor at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. And today, we're talking about the subject of government. What does government mean from a biblical perspective? Who should be involved in government? What, do, what does it look like for Christians to, uh, to be involved with and think about and uphold a godly vision of government? Lots of really interesting questions that, uh, that we want to dive into. So, without further ado, here we go with Joe Boot on the question of government according to the gospel. Well, Joe, mm-hmm. it's good to have you back. It's nice to be back. It's, <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, I mean, not as if we've gone anywhere. We've just been been about that our father's busy. business with other things. Yeah, it's yeah. been a very busy fall season, yeah. How you been? Pretty good. Been darting around all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Where have Quick I been? trip uh, to Australia. Australia, the United States, Europe. Yep. Um, and uh, I've got one more, one more uh, weekend conference ahead of me. And then uh, I've mercifully got uh, the month of December for writing and uh, Christmas things. So Perfect. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Christmas things. Yeah, and uh, I was just thinking for our uh, for our time together today, being as we are just about to uh, to kick off the Advent season. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been uh, one of the things that you've been working on is a uh, a book on government, mm-hmm. government and the gospel. Yeah, and immediately it uh, it gets me thinking about that passage from Isaiah uh, Isaiah nine, uh, the depiction of Christ as as lawkeeper, as lawgiver, and I was just thinking that for our time together, maybe we could uh, we could start with this passage and go into sort of some of the different ways that that Scripture understands and defines and circumscribes government. So, with uh, with your permission, I'll start start with this passage here. Um, this is Isaiah nine six to seven. We read: For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
So we, we like to read this passage at Christmas. Uh, we like to read about how the Virgin will conceive and bear a son. We, we love how clearly the, uh, the prophet looks forward to, uh, to the, the birth of Jesus. Um, but what, what do we make about this point about government? Like the word, the word government in this translation, it shows up two times in two verses. Uh, but uh, what, what, are we, what are we supposed to, to do with that? Well, you're right in saying that when we read these uh, passages, we tend to focus on the... Typically, this passage is only heard during the Christmas season as well, right. as you pointed out. So it's not exactly one. I've often in the past signed off my letters um, that I, letters that I write uh, for the increase of his government. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been one of my uh, signing off monikers um, because th- the the import of what scripture has to say about this um, is often missed by many of us as believers and we're thinking about at Christmas time people are thinking about peace and he's the wonderful counselor he's the mighty God it's the identity of Jesus but we actually uh, rarely focus in on the increase of his government uh, and uh, the the full scope of what the scripture is telling us there, that this virgin who is conceiving is giving birth to the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is the Messiah? Well, he's the anointed one. Who's the anointed one? Well, he's the one, as we read in Genesis, whose right it is to rule. Uh, he's the uh, the star that's come out of Jacob. Uh, and who is the star that's come out of Jacob, whose right it is to rule? Well, he is the seed of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. So, of course, if you trace the promise back and you see it uh, coming up again and again, that there there is one who's coming, whose right it is to rule. Uh, And this was the expectation of the Jews, of course, that the, the Messiah... Uh, the king would rule on the throne of David, as the prophet says there. So uh, the the throne of David, uh, the exact quotation here, to there, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Clearly, the Bible has in mind here much more than Jesus's personal government of my heart. Right which is the way we tend to think of the, the rule of God in our lives. Oh, yes, I believe in the rule of God, and yeah, he's governing my heart, he's governing my life. Yeah. And of course, that is important. It's, it's very important that as believers, as Christians, we recognize that our salvation means the government of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. But the full import of this government is much bigger, much broader um, uh, this messianic government of the Christ is much bigger than the personal government of my heart. Mm-hmm. And the very fact that the prophet refers to the throne of David and his kingdom to establish it and uphold it forever. Well, the throne of David is the throne of the son of David, the King David, uh, King of uh, Jerusalem, um, who was born in the city of David, of course, of Bethlehem, where Christ is born. He's He's prefiguring the greater uh, David, who is the Christ. And his kingdom and his rule and his domain is not merely a strip of land in Palestine. Uh, It's the whole cosmos. 
So we're promised in this season that of the increase of the government, the rule, the kingdom, the authority of this king who is coming and is come now, of course, there shall be no end. Um, And the zeal of God, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And one of the things that attends the uh, realization of the kingdom is growing peace. And that peace, of course, starts as our hearts and lives are transformed. Paul says we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings, of course, as people come to faith in the Lord, peace with one another, which we see uh, manifest in the life of the church around the Lord's table. And as the seasoning effect of the gospel goes out from God's people, uh, it produces peace uh, in the earth. And I often have looked back in Christmas sermons to the famous First First World War Christmas armistice, the Christmas peace, mm-hmm. um, where in the that's right, yeah, in the in the um, was it the Somme, um, where the uh, some of the German soldiers start singing from their trenches, "Silent Night, Holy Night" in German, and the sound is drifting across to the Allied trenches. And uh, they begin singing and lighting candles and eventually they get out of their trenches and they go and talk with one another and and show pictures of family together and even play soccer together in no man's land. Mm-hmm. And the um, the commanders on both sides were concerned that this, this Christmas peace was going to sap the will of these men to fight when they had to go back to their trenches. Yeah. Um, well, that's just one very small picture, though, of, of what how this, the the seasoning implications of the government of Jesus Christ, what it actually means and how it uh, does and, and, and can and will flesh itself out in the lives of human beings. So I would say the starting point is to recognize that this government that, that uh, is promised here uh, of the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, uh, is far, far bigger than an interiorized or privatized sense of just personal government it's about the kingdom and the rule of the greater son of david what was he gonna say oh yeah so if uh, if i can pivot a little bit from there you you've alluded to the uh the importance the necessity of that uh that personal kingship in my own heart and then of the the cosmic rulership of uh of Christ the Messiah over over the cosmos. Zoom in a little bit, but not all the way to my own heart here. Um, we've we've gotten used to talking about whenever whenever anyone talks about the government, we all we all assume that we we know what we're talking about uh, in terms of the civil magistrate. So we say the government. We put the definite article in there, and that's like the only question of what, federal, provincial, which. Which government? Um, yeah. But uh, as you uh, as you hinted at, and maybe you can switch down that track. Government, in the biblical perspective, in uh, in terms of what it means to be human, is has so many so many more implications than the state. Yeah. Yes. The uh, uh, remarkably, you know, if you if you just point back for just a moment to the identity of Christ and the promise of his government. In uh, Revelation 1, 5, we're told that Christ is now the 
ruler of the kings of the earth. That's right. Why is that? Well, Psalm 2, Psalm 110 uh, make absolutely clear that this messianic king is the governor, the ruler, the king of the nations, and he's the king of kings and he's the lord of lords. And the angels are declaring this at uh, the the what we call now the Christmas season. And one of the remarkable uh, things that's taught repeatedly in the New Testament is that Christ is seated now because of his death and resurrection. He's now seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of all government, at the right hand of all power and authority. Uh, this is what Stephen sees there in Acts chapter 7. It's what mm. Paul talks about in, in Ephesians chapter 1 uh, uh, and uh, Colossians 3, 1. He's seated at the right hand of God. And that the right hand is the place of government. It's the place right. of authority. It's the place of power. It's a symbol of the place of absolute total power and authority. And this is precisely why uh, Christ's uh, uh, victory over death and sin and so forth this is precisely why he's able to send out the disciples in matthew 28 the great mm -hmm. commission mm -hmm. in terms of his total authority so jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth is mine yeah. therefore you can go and teach and disciple the nations uh, and uh this recognition of, of Christ's total authority led to, in the ancient world, the beginnings of a new view of politics. So in the, in the, in the ancient world, in the, in the classical world, the state, the uh, res republica, the, the, the polis, if you look at whether you're thinking about the Greeks or the Romans, the, the, the city-state, this, the, uh, the political life of man was everything. The Greek philosophers thought of man as a political animal. And any salvation that you might hope to gain was through the state. And when the, when the early church were actually preaching the gospel in the first century, there, had, there was the reality that they confronted of the emperor cult, where you offered incense on the altar to Caesar as Lord. And so this declaration of the of this new king, Jesus. Again, uh, Acts chapter seven, uh, 17, uh, in the first seven verses there, you'll see that they were proclaiming another king, Jesus. And as such, they were charged with acting against the decrees of Caesar. Yeah. And that charge was actually true mm -hmm. because they were declaring another king. And this birthed in the world a new concept of politics, that the state wasn't the absolute sovereign. The state wasn't the source and author of all government. And the, uh, you weren't a political animal, but actually human beings were made in the image of God and they were ultimately under the sovereignty and lordship and government of Jesus Christ. That was the claim. And over the, the ensuing centuries, the church became the first truly free, uh, independent institution. It became the first uh, independent government outside of the state. A church is a form of government. We talk about church discipline. We talk about church government. Um, well, we shouldn't take that for granted. The, yeah. the, the arrival of the church in history, uh, as we know it from, um, from the book of Acts, uh, is, the, is, a, is one of the manifestations of the kingdom of God where you have now an institution other than the state 
that is recognized as a legitimate form of government in human life. So actually, you're right, what we're dealing with today is a, is a radical reductionism that tries to reduce government to the life of the state. Mm -hmm. Well, what is the state? The state is only a territory, right? The state yeah. is actually a territory. It's uh, um, municipalities and, and, uh, and provinces and so forth and nations. It's a, it's a territory. And in that territory, there's a monopoly on the means of force. Right. right. So there's yeah. there's in a particular territory, you've got a unified um, uh, public, if you will, you've got unified sense of public law, you've got a republic, you've got a public legal sphere. And uh, that impinges upon various aspects of life. Uh, but it's only one form of government in our lives. Right. And, and the state isn't really the government either. Right. The, the, the government are those that are individuals who have been elected to office whose members actually change frequently because of elections, because of retirement, because of all kinds of changes. Um, so uh, government is something that people take on as a trust to occupy a particular office um, uh, when it comes to what we would call today the modern state. Um, but you cannot equate the state with government um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in toto. In a reductive right? in way. In a reductionistic way at all. Um, the family is a government. Right. Uh, there's, 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 there's rules, there's um, authority in the life of the family. Mm -hmm. um, there's discipline in the life of the family. There is, of course, even before that, there's the self-government of the Christian individual. Yeah. And, you know, the Proverbs... Uh, tell us it's better to govern one's own life than to govern a city, right? If you can't yeah. rule yourself, well, how can you possibly take on responsibility for governing other people yeah. in a certain aspect of the public aspect of their uh, uh, life, the public legal aspect of their life? Yeah. Do you remember, uh, you know, Andrew Kern, the uh, classical yes. educator? He, he said something, I was listening to something he said recently, what he does with the uh, a boys class that he teaches, like teenage boys. And they've got this sort of call and response that I heard the other day. I really loved it. He said, uh, they say, I am a king because I have learned to rule myself. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly where, that's exactly where government begins. Yeah. And no government can enforce, uh, no civil government can enforce laws that the vast majority of people are not already enforcing in their own lives. So once you get it right. to a point where the vast majority of people aren't prepared to live by uh, a self-imposed uh, sense of uh, government, a set, uh, of law, of propriety, of, of, of dignity, and so forth, um, you know, when then having a police force is hopeless. Police forces and courts are there to address the small minority yeah. of a society that are unwilling to live by uh the 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 law of the land yeah um that's what they that's what they exist for yeah um, and it's like it's a minuscule minority it's a very very small minority and even. it wouldn't uh, you couldn't it, it would be totally unwieldy you wouldn't have a civilization precisely and and that's is precisely why when you get mass delinquency when you get the collapse of the family and breakdown of the family yeah. you will eventually have the total breakdown of a culture yeah. because the, the individual must govern themselves the family is a form of government and there are other forms of government the the our vocations are a form of government i mean yeah. they govern us i mean you know you had you got here at nine o'clock this morning right. 
Why? Because the vocation that we uh, we are in is a form of government in our lives. It, it, it governs us. Uh, the um, the the businesses that uh, people may be part of the the universities or schools that we're in these are forms of government in our lives and if you're in one of those professions like law or um, or medicine then there are bodies that govern uh, the professional standards yep. of uh, that um, area of uh, of that that discipline or that area of civil social. Um, and cultural life so there are a multiplicity of guilds and so on so all of these things are government and I think it's a reflection of the the essentially statist um, sort of radical liberal approach that most people who have sort of taken in by osmosis that we no longer make proper distinctions um, and differentiate correctly when we're talking about the different aspects and types of government uh, the the sort of encroachment of the government, the civil government of the state into all these different areas, is a reflection of the basically the the collapsing of a Christian perspective on on government. Mm-hmm. So, like you've already uh, you've already mentioned that uh, governments are made up of people, mm-hmm. and uh, the state, the civil government, is not exempt from that. That those are people who have been, as you said, elected to one to an office, mm-hmm. agreed to take on that responsibility. And when you have people, you have assumptions, you have commitments, you have beliefs and worldviews that are that they are bringing to bear. Somebody's vision of a just and right and good society is going to be enshrined into law. Yes. Um, so bi- biblically speaking let's uh let's look at the look at the role of the civil servant um mm-hmm. what is uh what is their responsibility before god and to their fellow man mm-hmm. well it's interesting isn't it that the language that we've adopted for uh that privileged public service that you're talking about where somebody agrees to occupy a particular office for a limited period of time mm-hmm. with a delimited jurisdiction yeah. uh, that we've called that um, civil service uh, civil servants yeah. they're not civil dictators right. at least they're not supposed to be <laughs> you know the term is not you know a civil um, uh, emperor yeah. right but a civil servant and uh, if you look at some of the other ways that we talk about government in the west because of our christian history we talk about the prime minister and ministers What's a minister? Well, they're, they're, they, they occupy a ministry um, and they minister something. Um, it doesn't originate with them. Uh, rather, it's something that, they, that is ministered or administered through them. Right. And uh, think about the ministry of corrections, for example, or a ministry of education. Uh, this all presupposes that any form of occupying of a public office is to be actually under a higher authority, uh, under an ultimate source of sovereignty, and that that ultimate source of sovereignty clearly then, if the offices of state are ministries, it clearly doesn't originate in the state itself. And this was, this is the legacy of Christianity in the West. 
Um, so the obligation of a civil servant is just that. It's to serve the public. It's to serve the community. It's to serve that society in terms of um, a legitimate office to which they've been elected or appointed. And from a Christian standpoint, that obligation uh, begins with a recognition of the ultimate source of sovereignty, which is God himself, and um, submission to his word. And even though these things may only be perceived by many today as sort of cultural vestiges, leftovers of a Christian worldview, the fact that oaths of office and uh, oaths in courts and uh, coronation oaths and all of these things are uh, taken on the Bible. Um, you know, I was watching a documentary just the other day, actually, um, that was, uh, it, w it actually was not about this in particular, but it was um, about the United States and it was the last century and different off uh, um, presidents being sworn into office and they, they were kissing the Bible. Not only are they holding the Bible, you know, these, the, these, during these ceremonies, they keep kissing the Bible. Is that right? Yeah. Like after a, after a particular statement? or Yeah, after, um, after a statement, at the conclusion of the ceremony, they've been holding it, they're kissing the Bible. Is it an open Bible or closed? Uh, in this case, it was a closed Bible, although the oath of office used to be taken on an open Bible That's right. to Deuteronomy 27, 28, that invokes the blessings and cursings of God on the nation. Yeah. And, uh, of course, famously... Uh, the coronation oath of Elizabeth II there um, is all centered around her receiving the orb with the cross on it, mm -hmm. receiving the Bible as the royal law of God, recognizing that she's there to serve the empire of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what, whether people like these things or not, right, the simple fact is, for the same reason that uh, Moses is carved into the walls of the Supreme Court building in the United States and the Ten Commandments used to hang on all of the crown courts in the United Kingdom, there is a recognition that all legitimate authority ca cannot be tyrannical, which is to serve itself. Um, it must be submitted to a higher sovereign authority. It's a ministry. It's an office, which is a trust. You know, if you occupy an office, it's a it's a limited trust, and that's the Christian view of of civil service. So, uh, you know, if 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 uh, you're in one of those roles, that person needs to be asking themselves, uh, what is my obligation to God, and in light of that, what are, what are my obligations to the society that I'm serving. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast from Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.